0: 1 Corinthians chapter 10, our son gave us a new flat screen TV for uh, Christmas. Uh, I was dumbfounded when I opened the box. I made mean, this great big box sitting there next to our tree and I, I, I'm so stupid I couldn't even figure out what it might be. And I opened it up and I just went, oh, I couldn't believe it. Uh, the TV that we have is one of those great big uh, projector models. Uh, we inherited that one. We, we've only ever bought one TV in our married life, and we've uh, either inherited or been given the rest of them. But this was one, one of those new little skinny flat screen jobs. So I had to make a, I said, oh, I need to make an, a stand for it to sit on, you know. I love to do woodworking. I don't do it a lot, but I enjoy it and I thought, I'm, I'm going to make a new thing for it. We, we had this thing where we had the, uh, you know, the stereo and some of that stuff sitting there and a place to put a few tapes and whatnot or uh, CDs. And Well, I need to make a new one, and uh, boy, that'll be a fun project. And, and right away, my wife says, maybe you should buy one. <laughs> and I took some offense at that. <laughs> I said, I've got, I've got everything I need. i just got to get a little bit of wood, you know, and we'll make this thing. And she said, and you'll need to buy some new tool. And I said, oh, no, no, I've got everything I need, you know, it'll be great. And turns out she was right. I did need to buy a couple of new tools. Yeah. I hate to admit it when my wife is right. You know, it's natural to see things from a perspective that allows you to do what you want to do, but a mature choice is only made when the whole picture is considered. The believers in Corinth wrote to Paul and they said, Paul, is it okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols? You know, and certainly there's a broader application of that to our life. There are things in life where we say, is it okay to do this or this or this? God doesn't specifically prohibit this thing. Is it okay for me to do it? And they anticipated that Paul was gonna say, yeah, that's fine because an idol is nothing and I know you're not worshiping idols and you just go right ahead. And instead, Paul writes a pretty lengthy teaching You know, in our way of of conceiving of it, it's three chapters long. That's a pretty significant chunk of the New Testament. And so what Paul did was he said, well, now you need to think about this, and you need to think about this. And today in chapter 10, he comes to what might be the most important truth they needed to consider in order to make a spiritually mature choice. See, they wanted to look at it in kind of a limited, narrow focus and say, yeah, it's going to be okay. And the Apostle Paul says, no, there's some other things you need to consider. Please follow as I read from 1 Corinthians 10. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all of our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses. He's talking about the people of Israel way back in the Old Testament. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples And they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stand take heed, lest he fall. Paul uses the history of Israel to teach an important truth to the believers in Corinth. And he starts off with the awesome spiritual experiences of the Jews, the things that are recorded here in these first four verses were, were some of the bragging rights of the Jews. Okay? If the Seahawks are victorious today, it won't just be bragging rights over winning a game. It will be bragging rights over playing in the coldest weather ever. Yeah, we are that great, you know. The Jewish people bragged about their history. And they bragged about some of these four things are just examples of what they bragged about and the first one says they were under the cloud what in the world is that talking about exodus 13 tells us what it was talking about the lord went before them god went ahead of them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so as to go by day and night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. So he went with them. He guided them. There was a cloud. Above them in the daytime, there was an obvious cloud. And when the cloud moved, they moved and followed. And when the cloud stood still, they stood still. And at nighttime, there was a light for them from a fire in this cloud. And here's the point of all of that. God made his leadership visibly known to his people. They were not just wandering in the desert. We talk about Israel wandering in the desert. There was no wandering. They were following God. Now, I know it came to a point where God was upset with them, and so they went around in circles. We should call it circling in the desert. But they were under the cloud. They were led by God. The next phrase there says they passed through the sea. We're a little more familiar with that. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind. All that night... And he made the sea into dry land and the waters were divided. So the children of Israel went into the middle of the sea on the dry ground and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Great miracle of of them coming out of Egypt, coming right up against the Red Sea and the Egyptian army is coming in from behind. And God parted the waters and it's not just the miracle of the parting of the waters but the dry ground. And they walked through to the other side, and God closed those waters up on the Egyptians. A visible, miraculous demonstration of the reality of God. A visible, miraculous demonstration of the reality of God. The third phrase here in 1 Corinthians 10 says, "...they were baptized into Moses." That is not trying to tell us they had a baptism service where they dipped everybody under the water and said, okay, you're officially Jewish now or or something like that. The word baptism means, it does mean to be immersed and that's the way the word is being used here as in they were completely identified with Moses. And here's the big deal about Moses in this text that you need to understand. The Jewish people held up Moses as just one of, if not the greatest man of all time, maybe him and Abraham up there together. Then this, and this is a phrase, this is a, some words from the Pharisees who said this, then they reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we don't know where he's from. This was a criticism the Pharisees leveled at some of the disciples of Christ. So all the way down into the time of Christ, one of the greatest identities that a Jew could have was to say, I'm a follower of Moses. And they would look at the fact that Moses wrote the Old Testament law, and they were following the law. They're saying, I am a disciple of Moses. Moses was at the top of the stack for them. He was one of, if not the greatest man of all time. And then there are <clears throat> two, two more things that are mentioned, food and drink provided by God. So it was that quails came up at the evening and covered the camp, and in the morning the dew lay all around the camp, and when the layer of dew lifted there on the surface of the wilderness was a small, round substance as fine as frost on the ground. So when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, And this is where the word manna comes from, if you don't know. that In the Old Testament, the word manna literally means, what is it? So they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, this is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. And they would take this and gather it, much like gathering grain or something like that, and make it into bread and eat it. So God gave them meat and bread. God just caused the animals to come in there and walk up and say, here I am, take me. And then, of course, he also gave them to drink. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock. They came to a place where they didn't have water, and and God says to Moses, I will stand before you on the rock, and you will strike the rock, and the water will come out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Again, the big deal here is this, the way that they ate and the way that they drank was a visible manifestation of the presence and power of God. Now here's the real lesson that I think we miss sometimes. Let me rephrase, let me re- recap these, this history of Israel. In verse 1, they had the personal, visible leadership of God they experienced a miraculous deliverance by God. In verse 2, they were led by one of the greatest men of God of all time who did many miracles. In verse 3 and 4, they ate food and drank water that was provided in a visibly, tangibly, miraculous way. And so Paul goes over these great blessings that the people of Israel had, this great blessing, A personal, visible, physical connection to God. But what was the result of all of that personal, visible connection to God and the miraculous demonstration of God's power? What was the result? Look at verse 5. But with most of them, God was not well pleased. Have you ever longed for a visible miracle? Oh, God, if you could just do this, then I would know you're real. How about parting the Red Sea? Would that tell you God is real? How about, God, I'm hungry. Would you drop some food down right now, right here? Boom. See, We rarely think that way, but when we do think that way, we tend to think, you know, if I could just see something like that, I would absolutely know God was real. The people of Israel had these tremendous miracles done, but the result was not positive in their life. Look at verse 6. Now these things became our examples And he's going to go into another list now, and he is going to talk about the astounding spiritual failure of the Jews. They had a tremendous privilege in being connected with God, but they failed spiritually. First of all, they failed by becoming materialistic. Materialism is the love of the physical stuff of life. I don't believe it's wrong to you know, enjoy your, your chair and your bed and your meal and all of that. God doesn't say that's wrong. But he says it's wrong to love the stuff of this world more than we love him. Look at verse 6. These became our examples to the intent that we should not desire, have this focused, strong desire after evil things as they also Lusted. Well, what's that talking about? We go back to Numbers and we find out. Now, the mixed multitude, people who were not Jewish necessarily that came with them, those people yielded to the intense craving. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish that we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers the melons, the leeks, the onion, the garlic. But now our whole being is dried up. There's nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. They went to the cupboard, and all there was was meat and potatoes. Bah! That's what it was. They said, we, we remember the, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks. And while they were saying that, their mouth was starting to water. Oh. And they got fixated on the stuff of life. God had provided for their needs, but they wanted more. Here he is, <laughs> he literally dropped the meat on the ground for them to get. And they're going, is that all you got? Materialism. Look at verse 7. The second sin is mentioned. And do not become idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That's the, f- the worship of a false god. Idolaters. Here's an example of that from their history. Now when the people saw that Moses was delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. Do you understand this happened just a few days after leaving Israel? You know, God parts the sea, God is feeding them and so on and Moses is absent for a short while, and they're going, make us a God. Isn't that a crazy statement? I mean, just think about this. Make us a God. Really? I can make a God? (laughs) It seems kind of ironic there. But that's what they did. They were not satisfied with the amount of God's presence that they had. They wanted more. And so unfortunately, Aaron did what they said. And of course, that was a a source of great problem for them. Look at verse 8. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. There are... There is more than one time when sexual immorality was committed, but here is one example of it from their history. Now Israel remained in Acacia Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry or or adultery, uh, you know, fornication with the women of Moab. This occurred after the law was given, so they knew that it was wrong, but they had no regard for God's law. Look at the next item in this terrible list in verse nine nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents when Paul does this he he brings together Old Testament and New Testament theology in a unique way the people in the Old Testament era did not know they were following Christ they did not know that that rock from which they drank was Christ they did not fully understand the Trinity and yet Christ was in that, and and so when they were complaining against God, when they were accusing God of wrongdoing, they were also accusing Christ of wrongdoing. This this idea of tempting God has multiple uh, ideas in it, but one of them is here. Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around to the land of Edom, and the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. was a hard trip, and the people spoke against God and against Moses, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Again, they were dissatisfied with God's provision. And so they essentially accused God of wrongdoing. You've brought us out here to die. You've messed up, God. That's what they said. They made an accusation of wrong. The idea of testing or trying or tempting is a a reference to examining someone to see if they've done wrong. And they came to the conclusion that God had done wrong. There's one more thing in this, in this list. Um, look at verse 10. Nor complain, as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. I've called this accusing God of not caring. Numbers 14, why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword? that our wives and our children should become victims would it not be better for us to return to Egypt the carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in this wilderness all of you who were numbered according to your entire number from 20 years old and above except for Caleb the son of Jephunah and Moses or Joshua the son of Nun you shall by no means enter the land which I swore I would make you dwell in. Which brings us back to verse 5 and that last phrase. Most of them, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. They accused God of not caring and it reminds me of the phrase today that I've heard in a number of a number of settings especially as I've been in training from psychologically oriented folks who are Christians in some of my chaplaincy training they say this it's okay to be angry with God he has big shoulders from what I'm reading it is not okay to be angry with God God does care, and he does do what is best for us. The Jewish people had this uh, tremendous privilege, this tremendous privilege of knowing God, of being under his direct care and his direct leadership. But instead of blossoming as believers in God, they came under the direct discipline of God. Now, when we read a phrase like, like uh, verse 5, that, you know, God was not pleased with them, and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. And uh, verse 12, uh, let him, therefore let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. And when we look back at the Old Testament, we, we struggle to answer the question, Were these people real believers who came under God's discipline, or were they they unbelievers who came under God's judgment, or were they pseudo-believers, people who sort of claimed to know God but really didn't, and so they came under God's judgment? I I would offer you uh, this uh, understanding, and we're not going to go into it at length today, but I'll just offer one uh, supporting idea to go with it. I believe that when when god said through moses to his people there is going to be an event where i am going to strike dead the firstborn of man and beast over all of egypt and if you want to escape this judgment you be in your house you sacrifice a lamb you put the the blood on the doorpost you eat the lamb according to instructions that i will give you you be there under the blood in your house and I will pass over you in judgment. I will not judge you. I believe that that event was the watershed event, which is parallel to uh, our salvation today. If they believed God, they obeyed him. If they didn't believe God, they didn't obey. And so all of these people who believed God came out into the wilderness. Now, when we look up the numbers in the Old uh, Old Testament, the census that was taken was 600 Uh, and 6,000, I believe, I wrote it down here somewhere, a little over 600,000 men who were capable of going to war. And so what that means is on, on the average, most of those men would have been married, so we double that number. And on average, a fair number of them would have had children. And so we could triple that number. So we would conservatively estimate somewhere between 1.2 and 1.8 million people came out of Egypt. And we just read that God put to death everybody 20 years and old and above. Okay? And so the question we have to ask is, did those people die and go to hell? Or were, did they die under God's disciplining hand? Well, I would just offer this one example as a, uh, as a support to my thought that they died under God's disciplining hand in general. I, I know that probably not all of those people were true believers, but for us to say all of those 600,000 who were over 20 and were men, all of them were unbelievers, that, that seems a little bit extraordinary, especially when we consider the example of Moses himself. Moses was put to death by God before he could enter the promised land because in one of those times when they needed water, Moses struck the rock and he wasn't supposed to strike the rock. So he was judged by God. He was disciplined by God by saying, you can't go into the promised land. If all of those people were unbelievers, then we have to think that Moses was also an unbeliever who was judged. And when I fast forward to the New Testament, I see Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration with Elijah and with Jesus in his glorified state showing himself to Peter, James, and John. And I find it hard to believe that God would resurrect somebody from hell and set him on the mountain with Elijah and Jesus together. And so I'm I'm compelled to believe that Moses was a true believer who disobeyed God and came under the disciplining hand of God, and so he was not allowed to enter the promised land. And I'm compelled in general to believe that the majority of those people in, in that Old Testament setting with the Jewish nation, the majority of those people who were judged by God, I would see as true believers who were disciplined with the ultimate discipline which is to be refused to come into the promised land. The promised land was never a picture of heaven. It's a picture of the place of blessing in the Christian life. God had for them a wonderful place to live and to raise their family and to carry on his worship, and they failed to get there because of their disobedience. There's a parallel in the New Testament And we read this text regularly, but we don't often lay into this part of it. In the the text on the Lord's Supper, it says you should remember Christ and you should be right with him. You should have your sin confessed because he who eats and drinks of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick and many sleep the word sleep is how god speaks of death for the christian when we take a look back at the people of israel we say here's a bunch of people who had faith in god and yet they came to a point where they said i'm not going to follow god in this moment And I'm not going to follow God in this moment. And at different moments, God judged them with a very severe discipline, which was physical death. Look at this. We are supposed to confess our sin before we have the Lord's Supper, be right with the Lord, because if we don't, it's possible. It's possible that God can make us weak and sick and can even take our life from us. Now, I think you can understand why we don't talk about that a lot because it's kind of harsh. And I certainly don't want to conduct ministry by fear. But you could go to the end of 1 John and you can go to the end of James, the book of James and find a similar truth there. At the end of 1 John it says, there is a sin which leads unto death. I don't say that you should pray for that. In other words, some people will get themselves into sin so seriously that God will take their life from them. God doesn't make Christians pay for their sins. One of the the great errors that I encounter regularly with Christians is that they think, well, I am sick today because God is making me pay for something I did wrong yesterday. Christian, there's only one person who could pay for sin, and that's Jesus. Jesus. God will not take your life, God will not bring illness on you, God will not bring any kind of discipline on you to make you pay for sin. But what God will do is he will bring uh, difficulty, he will bring illness, he will bring whatever he might need to to get you to turn to him and say, I've been away from you, Father, and I need to confess my sin and be right with you and live for you. It's because God loves us and takes our sin seriously. Hebrews chapter 12 talks about the fact that God disciplines the children whom he loves. Uh, Someday, Mason will be out playing in the front yard. And someday, his mom or his dad or both of them multiple times will have to say, don't run into the street. Now, why will they say that to him? Because they don't want him to be hurt, okay? Why does God from heaven bring circumstances in our life to get us to stop what we're doing? Because he doesn't want us to be hurt. The Jewish people were going in the wrong direction, and so God did what he needed to do at that moment to wake up perhaps the other folks, and teach them how serious their sin was. The application of this whole story comes for us. The application of this whole story comes for us in verse 12. Therefore, verse 11 and 12. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition or teaching Verse 12, therefore, here it is, the moral to the story. Let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. When we apply this experience of the Jewish people in the Old Testament, first of all, to the Corinthian believers, there is a a very significant parallel in their experience. And the first one is this. They became believers under a great man. Okay? The Corinthian believers had the Apostle Paul, and potentially, if we, if we understand the Scripture right, perhaps Peter was even there also at some point, or else they met Peter in some other place and then moved to Corinth or came back to Corinth, but they became believers under a great man. And you remember earlier in the book how they're, how they're bragging about the guy who led them to the Lord. Oh, I'm a disciple of this guy, and I'm a disciple of that guy, and I'm a disciple of Paul. They were bragging about that. Some of them even said that they were disciples of Christ. Maybe they were in Jerusalem. Maybe they knew, saw Christ personally. They became believers under great men. They had a great privilege, and they experienced the power of God firsthand. Look at these verses from verse, chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus that in everything you are enriched by him in all speech and knowledge. That is a reference as we will see later in the book to the spiritual gifts of speaking God's truth in prophecy or speaking in tongues and that sort of thing. In everything you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift. In other words, they had healing, they had all of the miraculous gifts that God gave in that era. They had them all going on in their church. They had great men who were teaching them and influencing them. But what was the result in their life? Spiritual immaturity. Those miraculous things, those great men, were not enough to propel them to godliness. John MacArthur summed it up well in his comment when he said, they thought they were strong enough to freely associate with pagans in their ceremonies and social activities and not be affected morally or spiritually as long as they did not participate. These people were, they, they had a lot of exposure to God, but they did not come out from that strong in a spiritual sense. And so Paul warns them, and he says, you need to be careful about how close you're going to get to unbelievers. See, one of the issues they didn't think about at all is this if I'm gonna eat meat sacrificed to an idol, and in a later text, we're gonna read that they actually went to the idol temple to eat meat, it's maybe like what we would think of as a restaurant. He said, you're gonna interact, maybe, maybe your unbelieving neighbor is gonna bring you over for dinner, and he's gonna say, hey, I've just got this meat, it's just been sacrificed, let's have a great feast together. And, and he says, you're gonna be there, you need to think about something How strong are you going to be spiritually when you get that close to unbelievers? When I was asked to join the volunteer fire department, I was overjoyed as a young man. I thought, what fun this will be. Um, I, I could just imagine grabbing a fire hose and blasting away at a burning building But I had no idea that you can get hurt six ways from Sunday with a fire hose. See, if you've never taken hold of a hose, like, you know, even a small inch-and-a-half hose runs at 125 to 155 150 pounds of pressure. So when you open the valve, it's like a 150 pound person pushing this way on you. So you, you really have to lean into it and hold on to it. And if you get a hold of a two and a half inch line, which is the big lines, you'll see them laying on the ground, you'll see two guys, you know, one guy is is directing the nozzle and the other guy is holding this guy up. It's that powerful. Now if you don't know that if you were to pick up one of those two and a half inch lines and crank that valve open, you know what happens when you let go of that nozzle? It goes like this. Wow, wow, wow. And firefighters have been hit in the head with a nozzle and killed. Because there's a lot of, there's a lot of weight in the nozzle and a lot of pressure going around, and, and you think, hey, no problem, I'm gonna pick that dude up and go. And you're gonna get a hold of something that is gonna take you to a place you did not want to be. See, that's what Paul is telling these Corinthians. He's saying, look, it's not just about the meat sacrificed to idols. It's about your whole relationship (coughs) with those who don't know the Lord and things that they participate in. (coughs) He said, it's possible you're going to get a hold of something that's going to whack you in the head spiritually. And so he says, let him who thinks he can stand, take heed, or or wake up, or pay attention, because what might happen is when you think you're going to stand there is you're going to get a hold of something, and it's going to knock you down spiritually. What does it look like when we think we can stand? See, the Corinthians were going, hey, we can eat the meat sacrificed to idols. Hey, we're strong, we're up to it. What does it look like when a Christian... Thinks they can stand, but they haven't really thought about how they're going to stand. I think it looks like some things like this. It looks like, I, you know, I'm so busy, I don't have time to spend in the word of God every day. And after all, I'm strong. I'm not going to fall. I'm not going to cave. I'm not going to be knocked over. Don't need to pray about every single thing. God isn't interested in this little stuff in my life. And besides that, I can handle this and I can handle that. You know, if something big comes along, I'll talk to God about that. I don't need to be cautious about close relationships. I know these people are eating meat sacrificed to an idol. I know these people are looking at some things, doing some things that, that I, I don't think a person should do, but I can hang around with them because I'm strong. It's not gonna affect my spiritual life. Don't need to be careful about what you read or watch or listen to. Every, every piece of input that we get is on a sliding scale. At some point, it gets to where it is outright sinful. But before it's outright sinful, it's leaning toward wickedness. And it's real easy to say, well, this isn't sinful. This isn't like that over there, so you know it's okay if I look at this. It's okay if I read this, it's okay if I listen to this. We don't need to listen to counsel by mature believers. See, here's Paul giving counsel to these Corinthians. Would they take it? Would they listen and say, you know, I, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable eating meat sacrificed to idols, but the apostle Paul says there's some danger there. I'm gonna take that seriously. Don't ask for help when you're struggling. Christian, God has put you in the body of Christ so that when you're struggling, you can lean on somebody who's not struggling. And when you truly are strong, somebody else can lean on you. And and there is this mutual ministry of the word and of prayer and and perhaps some physical help at times and, and, and the ministry of exhortation. But when you think you're strong, I don't need that. I don't need to be connected to people. I don't need this. And when you think you're strong, you fall. You don't apply sermons to yourself, but you do apply them to other Christians. Boy, I sure wish so and so had been here to hear that thing today. That, that was an awesome sermon, Pastor, and I'm telling you, that guy over there needed it. You know? You're probably right. That guy probably did need it. You know, I've been reading a book called Dangerous Calling. And it's about being a pastor, and it's written by a fellow who, who has been a pastor. I'm not sure if he still is, but he's, he's a, a counselor and a, a well-known godly man. And he says one of the first places that pastors get into trouble is they don't let their sermons preach to themselves. You know, it'd be real easy for me to stand up here and say, well, Mary Ann, she needs this sermon. And uh, Jean, what a wicked sinner she is. Boy, she needs that thing. Lyle, just a young kid. He needs it all, you know. It's a real subtle thing that happens to us. we got to say, wait a minute, I need it. God's word's got to preach to me. And then the ultimate ultimate foolishness that we get into is we don't confess sin because we think we can handle it. Well, you know, I know this is kind of bad. This is a little wicked, but it'll be okay. And that's when we come under this kind of truth here. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit or uh, an arrogant spirit goes before a fall. Instead of such arrogance, what should we do? And Well, in fact, I I just want to offer this thought to you. As crazy as it sounds, some Christians think they can live for Christ without depending on him. That might be something good for you to meditate on this week and just to ask yourself the question, am I trying to live for the Lord without depending on the Lord in the word and in prayer and in connection with the body of Christ and and all of these godly practices? Instead of such arrogance, what should we do? Self-examination in regard to salvation. Examine yourselves as to whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you are disqualified? In other words, do I you know when it when I am in a period of struggle, I need to stop and say am I am I am I connected to God? I don't believe a person can lose their salvation and then gain it back again. I don't believe they can lose it to begin with, but I do believe sometimes we grow up and we make a profession of faith, or we do this or we do that, and we think we're saved, and maybe we never really have been saved. Uh, one of the reasons I love uh, Facebook is because I can connect with people I haven't seen for decades, and, and one of those is a guy named Roger who I met when I was a, an intern in a church years ago, and I thought, this is a wonderful, manly, Christian college-age guy he's a professional basketball player in europe and what an awesome guy that's the kind of guy i want to look up to and a few months later i got the church newsletter letter and it said roger went forward to put his faith in christ (laughs) and i called him up i said roger what in the world and he said you know i was just fooling myself and i thought good for you roger We need to examine ourselves. We should always be open to looking in God's Word and listening to God's truth and examining our heart and being open to say, Do I really know the Lord? Do I have the marks of Christ on me? Number two self examination in regard to sin. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight 28 that we, we just read a little while ago. Let a man examine himself and then let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. One of the wonderful things about the Lord's Supper, I hope it has not been lost on you, is that we come every month and we say, now, Jesus said, don't eat this with sin in your heart. So just take this moment while the bread's being passed and the juice is being passed and just examine your life and make sure you're right with the Lord. What a great reminder. Now, I do that every day. I'm not bragging about that. I'm just saying every day when I open up the word, I do that first because, because uh, I, I just want to walk with the Lord self-examination we should we should never be above that self-examination in regard to ministry if anybody thinks himself to be something when he is nothing he deceives himself but let each one examine his own work and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone in other words we should not go through life thinking i'm doing everything perfect and everything's fine i should stop and say where am i really at what am i really doing and then one more Self-examination in regard to your goal in life. Look at 1 Corinthians 10, verse, uh, where am I at? Verse 31, yeah, there we go. You know this verse. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We're going to get there, obviously, in the next week or two as we work through this text, but I wanted to jump ahead to just say this. When you're trying to answer the question, am I truly strong in the Lord? Part of the answer will come from that verse. Because if I'm truly strong in the Lord, my goal is to honor God in everything. The Corinthian believers had a goal. And the goal was, I want to be free to eat meat sacrificed to idols. That's what they really wanted. The Apostle Paul said, there are things in life that are more important than our freedom to do a certain activity. Sometimes we can get focused on enjoying something. I want this, I want that, I have to have this, I have to have that. And it may not even be a wicked thing. Eating the meat sacrificed to idol was not a sin in and of itself. Well, what the Apostle Paul has been saying is there are greater concerns. And if you really want to honor Christ in your life, you may have to say no to certain activities in order to say yes to honoring God. As I think back to my younger days as a young adult, I often wonder how I lived so long I did a lot of crazy things when I was a firefighter, and thankfully there's nobody here who was in my fire department because they love to tell stories about me. They still tell stories about me. Oh, Lunsford. Oh. Uh, one time we were working in our church over there, and the ceiling over there is about 10 feet higher than this one, and we needed to adjust some lights. So we put the scaffolding up. Scaffolding only went up about two-thirds of the way. So I got a ladder, and I put a ladder on top of scaffolding. A step ladder. And I get up there, and that wasn't tall enough. So I got a table. I put a table on the scaffolding. I put the ladder on the table, and I got all the way up to the top and adjusted that light. Still makes my palms sweat to think about it. Boy. No way I'd do that today. When we when we put this projector up, we went up and rented scaffolding, put it all the way to the ceiling. <laughs> be careful as we can be. It's, it is a problem with youth that we tend to think, hey, I can handle it. I can do it. The Corinthian believers were young in the Lord. Hey, I can handle this meat sacrifice to an idol. And the Apostle Paul's going... Now, now take a real close look here friends. He says take heed when you think you stand lest you fall. Heavenly Father, please bring your home your word home to us today in the way that you want it brought home. Please help us to understand your truth. You know what things in our lives are on the edge what things we have been uh, saying, no problem, I can do this, I can do that, it'll be okay. And really, you want us to step back from that edge, and you want us to care more about other things in the way that we serve you and live for you. Father, would you bring your word home to us today that way? (sighs) We want your joy and your peace in our lives, not our joy and our peace.